Christians like to say, as I said last week, you know, that this is an utterly unique time in history. But that's always true. So what? Everybody lives in a unique time in history. In my lifetime, many have said there have never been more signs of the coming of the Antichrist, and we try to predict who it is and figure out what, what's going on. But in the first century, Nero was the Antichrist. They knew it. He had to be. And there have been hundreds of dictators throughout history who have been called Antichrist. And who is more likely to have been the Antichrist than Hitler with his slaughter of the Jews and, and his, uh, his partner Mussolini from the, from the Roman Empire? And yet all of these likely end-of-the-world scenarios have come and gone. And last week I loved this quote from G.K. Chesterton who wrote, With every step of our lives we enter into the middle of some story which we are certain to misunderstand. We just don't have the perspective. We're not like God. We don't hold the universe in the palm of our hands. And we just don't know what really lies ahead. I told you last Sunday about hearing a sermon in the late 60s that he, my pastor guaranteed the return of Jesus by 1970. It was going to happen. Well, I guess it didn't because, I, I mean, I, I would assume he, he was wrong, I hope. But in our days, we face circumstances which make us think that maybe things are lining up for the coming of the king, for the, for the, for the entrance of his kingdom here on earth. And so the question I want to ask as we begin a new year is, how do we know when the end is near? How do you know? And then I want to ask, if the end is near... What are the implications for how I live? Jesus provides signs for the end of the age in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 and 25. You can read the prophets of the Old Testament and they'll give us some clues. You can read the epistles and they'll give us some hints about what it's going to be like. And Jesus, we know, will return. But the one thing we can say for certain is, well, he hasn't yet. So in this new sermon series, I want to ask two questions, and I want to ask only two questions. Question number one, how do I know how near we are to the coming of Jesus and the end of the world? How do we know? And second question, how do we live if we are near those days? So open your Bibles to the book of Revelation. Oh, I, you're going to groan. You Wait a minute, because I know what you're thinking. Isn't this the book with the, you know, the beasts and the multiple heads and strange visions and symbols and so obscure and it's just too confusing for me to figure out? How is that going to help us live? If that's what you're thinking, you're not alone. I got another G.K. Chesterton quote. He said, John saw many strange monsters in his vision. But he saw no creature so wild as the one of his own commentators, <laughs> as people wrote about it. <laughs> so yes, you're turning to one of the most controversial books in the Bible. And yes, it's true, there are some difficult passages to interpret. But it's also true that Revelation was written under the inspiration of God. It is profitable for our lives. So therefore, we need it and we need to understand it. So before we step into the world of images and figures of speech and apocalyptic language, let me provide some background that I think could be helpful. But don't forget our primary journey is twofold. Are we at the end of the times? 
And if we are, when we do, how do we live in light of that? So, the book of Revelation, if you have sermon notes, that's the first point, if there are such things as points in this message. They're not real clear, but it helps. The book of Revelation, it's the book of, Genesis is the book of beginnings. Revelation is the book of, of consummation, of the endings. It's the, the whole redemptive plan of God finally bears fruit and comes to its culmination in the book of Revelation. The title is The Revelation of John. For the sake of, of, of there's, there's no S on the end, okay? Don't ever put an S on it. It will drive me crazy. It's the Revelation of John. It's the book of Revelation, not the book of Revelations, all right? It's the book of Psalms, but it's Psalm 1. You don't say hymns 1. You say hymn 1, hymn 2, hymn number 453. We're going to sing it this morning. Okay, so the title, that was... That was from my childhood, sorry. <laughs> it's about the unveiling. That's what the word revelation means. It's the apocalypse. It's the, it's the disclosure, things that we didn't know before. And it was written late in the first century, probably about 95, 96 A.D., by John from the island of Patmos. He's out in exile on this island. The setting, okay? It was written at a time when the Romans were hostile to Christianity, and it was... And it was uh, erupting all over the place. And it was written to Asia Minor and Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. They began towards the end of the first century to not just worship dead emperors anymore. They began to worship living emperors. And so the emperor was Diocletian at this point. And, and they began to worship... I'm sorry, it was Domitian. It began with a D, I know. It was Domitian, and, and he was demanding people worship him. And they really liked emperor worship in Asia Minor, in Turkey. So it was very popular. And so the book of Revelation, as we'll see, was written to kind of to this geographic area. And, and as the Roman Empire begins to push back against the church, because the church will not worship the emperor, they make it very painful for the church. And it was a time of increasing persecution. And so Revelation contains a lot of pointed encouragement to believers facing persecution. Maybe that's why we don't understand it so well. We're not really looking for that. The structure of the book. Let me see if I can help you understand the structure in just a couple of minutes. Towards the end of chapter 1 in Revelation, John provides his outline. He says in chapter 1, verse 19, this, Write, therefore, what you have seen what is now, and what will take place later. So John says there's three parts to the book. What I've seen, what's taking place now, and what's coming later. What you've seen, Revelation 1 is a vision of Jesus. It's what he sees, what he has seen. What is now, it's Revelation chapter 2 and 3. There are letters to seven churches. And then what will take place begins in Revelation chapter 4, and that's where you begin to see the visions and, and through the end of the book. And it's in Revelation 4 that it gets a little tricky for us. But the structure of the book is not that complicated. It's what you've seen. There's a vision of Jesus. There's what's taking place now, these letters to churches, followed by what is to come, chapter 4 through the end of the book. We're introduced in chapter 5 to a scroll. And this scroll, this parchment, is held together, held closed with seven seals. And as these seven seals are opened, 
They fall to the earth and judgment comes. And right when you get to the end, you know, you're on seal six and now you're ready to open seal seven and you're thinking, it's finally over. Now, sorry, said the seventh seal contains seven more judgments. And those are the trumpets. And then they blow these trumpets and you got more judgments. And right as you think you're getting to the end, number seven, oh, there's seven more, seven bowls. And so you've got these series of jump, uh, judgments that come like a, like a telescope. They keep coming out. And, and in between, there's these interludes. That's the structure of Revelation. You got the, you've got the, the, the seals, followed by the trumpets, followed by the bulls. And in between, there's these interludes that kind of tell you what's going on in between. At the end, you have a description of the millennium, and then finally, the eternal state. That's the book of Revelation. And that's, that's how this is structured as a book. What you have seen, what is now, and what will take place centered around all of this judgment. Which brings us back to the two questions about which this series is built. How do I know how near we are to the beginning of the judgments, to the beginning of the end? And then how are we supposed to live as we get close to those days? How close are we to the end? How near is to, are we to the beginning of that which will take place? Has it already begun? Now, I promised in the promotion for this sermon series last week that we wouldn't speculate. You know, we're not going to go to some place and say, Jesus was here, but he's not really there, or he's there. You know, we want, we want the truth. So where are we in this scenario? Now, did you ever make it in your Bibles to the book of Revelation? Let's get there now. It's the last book of the Bible, if, in case you haven't found it yet. And so we're going to start in Revelation 4 and 5, where these things that are about to take place begins to be explained. And in Revelation 4, John describes the scene of heaven. It's the throne room of heaven. And he's got this difficult task to describe what he's seen in human language. That's a hard thing to do. Let's jump into the middle of that scene in Revelation chapter 5, verse 1. In Revelation 5, verse 1, John writes this, Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. So you have God the Father sitting on the throne holding a sealed scroll. The scroll is obviously of some importance because everyone's attention is focused on it, and this whole chapter is all about the scroll. In John's era, in his day, wills or inheritance documents were written on scrolls, papyrus scrolls that were sealed with seven seals. So anyone preparing a will would call seven trusted friends they would come, they would bring their signet rings, they would have a, oh, wow, if I had it, I'd bend, if I could, I'd bend over and get it for you, you know? <laughs> but that would be unique to that person. Sometimes they put their face on it, sometimes whatever, and they would put it in wax and they would seal that in some way that, that would, like a signature, okay? These signet rings were seven witnesses that, that were used, the scroll was rolled up. It's like, it's the, the document, today we would say that the document has been notarized. It's roughly the same thing. And then when the person whose scroll it is dies, they would bring these seven people together. And, is that yours? Yes. Has it been tampered with? No. Is that yours? And they would the, speak to the legitimacy of the document. And when they did then, with it was legitimate, they could unroll it 
and, and read what was on the pages. And anyone who in those days who had ever seen a will or who had received an inheritance would remember this picture. What does this scene mean? This scene means that someone important is about to give an inheritance. You're about to receive an inheritance. And we're going to explore that theme of inheritance in the book of Revelation as we move forward. But today I just want to say that the book centers around victors. And what are their rewards? That's what's in the scroll. So what happens next? Verse 2. So I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside. And I wept. This is John then. I wept and I wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. It was illegal for an unauthorized person to open and break one of the seals. They couldn't do it. And this scroll is so important that they couldn't find anyone in all creation who was worthy to open the scroll. And John says that's painful. He must have known what was written in it. It was important. He wanted the end of the age. He wanted the kingdom finally to be established, his inheritance to be made available. Verse 5, then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain standing at the center of the throne encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and he took the scroll from the hand of him who sat on the throne. Notice, first of all, nobody approaches God the Father like this ever. Remember the seraphim of Isaiah 6? They had to use two of their wings to cover their feet and two of their wings to cover their faces. But the lamb, the lamb can approach the father without any covering. Imagine the moment the lamb receives the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. When the Savior takes the scroll, he is finally doing what the Father had invited him to do way back in Psalm 2. Psalm 2 says this, I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. You see, this is the event that godly people throughout all of history have longed for. After so many years, the Son finally approaches the Father, the Ancient of Days, and He asks for the nations to be his inheritance. And he takes the scroll 
And what begins upon the taking of the scroll is worship in the inner circle. It moves out to the outer circle and finally out. Let's read it. We've got to at least read it at this point. Revelation 5, verse 8. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures, those closest, and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. You pray for the coming of the Lord. He's got them in his bowl. It's there. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. Now the circle gets broader. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders in a loud voice. They were saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and glory and honor and praise. Then the circle gets even broader. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. What a scene. But for this series, there is still just one question Has Jesus taken the scroll in his hand? Because if we know that he's taken the scroll, we know that the end is near. So has he taken the scroll? Have any of you been into the throne room of heaven? Not that I've checked, not lately. So we don't know. We're down here on earth. So the question is, once he takes the scroll in heaven, is there something that begins to happen on earth? Because then we would know. Well, yes, there is something that happens. And it begins in Revelation chapter 6, verse 1. I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow and was given a crown, and he rode it. And it goes, he got several seals here. Okay, let's get down to verse 8. You want to know when he's taken the, taken the, the scroll? I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by, a sword, by sword, famine, and plague, and the wild beasts of the earth. By the time you get to the fourth seal, one quarter of the population of the earth is dead. So does COVID mean it's begun and he's taken the scroll? Last I checked, we, there were 800,000 deaths from COVID as of the end of the year. A quarter of the world's population, which is in January of 2022, 7.9 billion. I'm going to round it up to eight because it's a lot easier. That's two billion people dead. For those mathematicians, it's 1.97. I did figure it out. Billion. Has Jesus taken the scroll in his hands? Not that we've seen. 
We're not, we're not down to this seal. And here's my point. We and our children may well live out our lives before this scene in heaven takes place where the Savior approaches the Father and takes the scroll in His hand and begins this series of judgments and establishes His kingdom. We can follow all the signs we want to follow, but we know this. The Son has not taken the scroll out of the hands of the Father. Because once He does, judgment begins. And John says once these things happen, they are going to happen quickly. And soon, two billion people will be dead. Not 800,000 from COVID. Can you imagine cable news if two billion people are killed? So therefore, where are we living in those, dis, dis, those times described in Revelation 119? Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place. Well, seems to me we're living with John in the what's taking place now. We don't know the day or the hour when the sun will take the scroll, but we know pretty sure he hasn't taken it yet. But once he takes it and puts things in motion, things are going to move rather quickly. And so this series is about two questions. How do I know how near we are to the coming of Jesus and the end of the world? And how do we live if we're near those days. And I've hinted that one of the main points of Revelation is to be a source of hope and encouragement as life gets painful. So what does John tell us about how to live in the what is now era of history? Well, John's very clear. Jesus is very clear. And what we discover about that section of Revelation are these seven letters to seven churches written, spoken from Christ the Savior Himself. So since we're not living in the what will yet take place era, maybe we better master the what is where we're living now era. So that's what I want to do over the next seven weeks. I want to explore what Jesus says to the church in the what is now era of history. Because if you want to stand in the place where you know in Israel Jesus stood, we can take you. There's a few of them we know of. If you want to know where Abraham stood, there's one or two we can take you to. We want to replace our speculation with a clear focus on what the Bible says to us all along. We can go through that what will, how do you live or what's going on in the what will take place future, Revelation 4 and forward. We've got to finish Matthew before we do that. I mean, if we really want to, we can do that. But we're going to finish Matthew first. But I want to focus our attention on what Jesus says to seven churches in Asia Minor in the first century. These seven churches are located roughly 30 to 50 miles apart along a circular road. If you begin at Ephesus and you go north to Smyrna, and then they're going to go around in a circle all the way around to Laodicea, which might explain the order of the letters. That's the exact order of, of the seven letters to the seven churches. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamon, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Now, there were other churches, some of them actually more prominent than the churches in these cities. Why did God choose these seven? Well, we know these served as kind of the postal district's headquarters, 
So if you wanted to spread the word out as far as you could, you, would, you probably would strategically write to them and they could disseminate the letters from there. So maybe it's just to get the letters to as many believers as possible. But there's another possibility. All of these cities had temples, priests, altars dedicated to emperor worship. So maybe these letters are written to cities because they were meant to be attacks on the front lines of the enemy. Every letter follows the same basic structure. There's a description of Christ at the beginning, which is drawn from Revelation 1. And then there's this period, there's a, there's a few words of encouragement. What are they doing well? Followed by a rebuke. Well, five out of the seven have a rebuke. Two of them do not. Followed by an invitation to him who hears, or to the one who overcomes. And then there's this reward. So there's a description of Christ, an encouragement, a rebuke, an invitation, and a reward. And guess where the rewards all come from? Ah, Revelation 21 and 22. So it's like these letters to the seven churches, they're clinging to the first chapter and they're clinging to the last chapter. They're sort of holding the entire book together. And in some ways, these letters to the seven churches are the center of the book because they do that. They hold everything together. And I want you to understand this morning, these letters are very personal. They're not just generic letters. Jesus knows these churches. He knows the people in them. He knows the culture around the church. And you can see that clearly in the letters. And you're going to see that each church has been influenced by its surrounding culture. Sometimes they fight back against the culture. Sometimes they succumb to the culture and they're shaped in their church by their culture around them. And so what we'll find in these, these seven mini letters are relevant, just as relevant for us today as I think they were in the first century. There's lessons for every church. It's just God's Word, not just to them, but to us. And they present to us some searching questions. Ooh, okay, we're not going to skip this part. They're lessons. You're going to have a blank spot in your notes. Deal with it. And these, these words are, these, these letters are tools for us to examine church, our church. And I think we should really think of these letters as, as a way for us to examine our own lives. Because just as there are specific lessons that, we, that each church needed to really hear based on who they were, there are some specific lessons we need to learn based on who we are and where we live. And our tendency is going to be, well, we'll just go to the easy stuff. We'll get to the encouragement and the, and the harder stuff. Eh, we don't need the rebuke part. But as we go through these, I want to ask, what would Jesus write to us if he were writing us a letter? Turn back to Revelation 1, verse 4, where Jesus has given three titles or descriptions. John says, John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia... Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits before his throne. Verse 5, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. These three titles in verse 5 are going to resurface at multiple points in the letters to the seven churches. And I think they help us to set the stage for what's ahead. Jesus is, number one, the faithful witness. 
This book has a lot to say about enduring persecution. In fact, until the final chapters, believers in Revelation, they all triumph. How? Through suffering. Jesus doesn't save them out of trouble. He sustains them in the midst of trouble. And this book is largely about how do we face persecution? And so Jesus, or John starts with Jesus. He's the faithful witness. He's the most faithful witness to what God is like. Look at Jesus, the express image of the Father. Second, He is the firstborn from the dead. This isn't Bethlehem. This is the empty tomb. He is the first one to get a resurrected body. After the resurrection, remember Thomas puts his, puts his hands inside the wounds. This isn't just some mystical spirit. It was a bodily resurrection. And that is the hope of all of us who put our faith in Christ. Domitian may take your life. He might kill your body. But if you're a believer, you got a new one waiting for you. It's okay. Jesus is the proof that that's true. Third, Jesus in his title, he's the ruler of the kings of the earth. He is the ruler, present tense. Not just a future reality, it's true now. After his resurrection, he gives the, he gives the disciples what? The power, all power is given unto me. I'm the ruler of the kings of the earth. The question isn't whether he is king. The question really is, is there opposition to that kingdom? And yeah, there often is, of course. But one day that will not be the case. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he's Lord. In Revelation, there's a consistent focus on the end. As believers, we don't long and live for this present world. We long for a future one. So that's exactly why we're diving into Revelation right now. We look around us, and we are a people in need of hope. But we need a hope that is firmly grounded in the person of Christ, the faithful witness to God's redemptive work, the ultimate evidence of God's resurrecting power, the true king who came to die for us and will reign over us. Because when Jesus takes the scroll from his father, the end will come. His return will not be so far. We haven't seen it so far, but he is coming. And rather than speculate on when that might be, let's focus on what the Bible has told us all along. Get ready for the day when our inheritance will be revealed. And that's our task. That's our goal. And that's what we're going to do in the next seven weeks. Let's pray. Sorry. Father, thanks for today. And I thank you for the hope of your word. Let us build our lives on the good news that we have a king who will take the scroll of the inheritance someday. Oh, oh, to see that scene. And when he begins to peel off the seals and the end will come. Let us be faithful to you until that day. In Jesus' name. Amen.